If you will turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, we will uh, be reading out of that passage today. So, the element of surprise. There's a few smirks in the room. The element of surprise can be a good thing. It can also be a bad thing. Uh, you know, as far as good thing, we find ourselves in football season. And I think those football fans, everybody loves a trick play. Where the defense is caught flat-footed and the offense is standing in the end zone with a smile. We all love the element of surprise when it comes to football. Uh, we're coming up on Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we all love the element of surprise when our adult children or college kids show up, and they didn't, you didn't know they were coming, the element of surprise, right? We all love that. Uh, we all love a good America's Funniest Home Videos, where somebody is having their 40th or 50th birthday, and somebody pulls off surprise, and somebody's falling to the ground with shock and excitement, we all love that, right? Uh, but there are some things that the element of surprise is not good. A test at school. Students in the room? How many of you guys would just say a surprise test at school, is, that is not the element of surprise that you want when you show up? All right. How about a burglar in the house? You walk into the house and you find out there's somebody in here. How about a massive utility bill? I'm of the generation that when we first got our cell phones, we were kind of hoping we didn't get this shock about overages on texts that didn't used to be unlimited, kids, right? How about a bad health diagnosis? Element of surprise? Nobody wants that. How about a foreign invasion on our soil? Nobody wants that. How about a junk transmission? Trashed. You come out and try to get out of your driveway and it won't go in reverse. Nobody wants these elements of surprises. Today, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. But in this passage, it's like Peter is taking his audience, putting, putting his arm around them, and he's saying, in light of what I just said in verses 7 to 11... There's a test coming, and I want you to be ready for it. And so if you just kind of glance back at verses 7 to 11, Peter just said in verse 7, the end of all things is near. So if you're wondering, are we in the end times? Yes, we are. And uh, he says, to be alert, to be sober, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. And he gives some real practical advice. Start practicing hospitality. Have some people over, right? And he says, in all this, it's so that God is praised. So Peter, in light of what he just says, he says, dear friends, and that's how he starts. So let me pray and ask the Lord uh, to help us understand the personal nature of, dear friends, can I tell you something? Like, I've given you some advice here, but can I really pull you in? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us understand this. You'd help us understand the personal nature of this. Uh, that this, these truths would meet us in our time of need as we seek to follow you. 
Please help us by your spirit to make sense of this and to believe it and to be ready for that test coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pick it up in verse 12. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And it is hard for the righteous to be saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So you can just follow along in the outline, and we'll look back at verse 12, but here's the thing. To be ready for the test coming, you have to expect it. So look at the outline there. It says, expect the trial of suffering. So Peter is cushioning his coming statements with the fact of how he feels about somebody. And uh, you ever have somebody say, you know you're my friend, right? And that can either be very warm and comforting. It can also be, oh boy, what's coming down the pipe? I am your friend, but what are you going to say? And the last time uh, he actually called them this is in chapter 2. So for the morning, just heads up, if it's, I'm going to refer to a passage outside of 1 Peter, I'll throw it up. But if it's in 1 Peter, we're going to look. So just flip your hand back to chapter 2. Look at verse 11 and notice how he refers to them as dear friends. The last time he said, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. So in other words, thinking of yourself as a traveler, as one who doesn't belong, he challenges them to abstain from sinful desires which war against their souls. And he says, I want you to live such good lives. I want you to live so different that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So this is the second time he has said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you. Now, Peter, when writing this, seems to have been written written this right at the time of the burning of Rome, which sparked a couple hundred years of pain, suffering, and persecution for followers of Christ. And he says, do not be surprised at the fiery test. That word test is to put to prove. It's the sense of putting under pressure to find out what really is the capacity of this vessel. And here, God is bringing his people through affliction and adversity in order to prove or to reveal the condition of their faith. So Peter's saying is, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal, or don't be surprised, or in other words, expect trials. 
Now, the only way we're surprised is if we're not prepared. You know that, right? Teachers in the house, you ever tell students you have a test coming, and then they show up, and then you can see the faces of a few of them who totally forgot and were not prepared? The look of horror in their face, right? The only way we're surprised by the trial coming is that we're not prepared. And I've said this before, but I just want to say, in today's culture, there's this really weird victimhood mentality that people are actually wearing as a badge of honor. The more ways they've been victimized, the more they wear this badge of honor and act like it's a thing of pride that they're a victim of things. The Bible does not elevate victimhood. In fact, the scripture tells us to be prepared and be ready and do not be surprised. In fact, the common lie that I believe keeps people from being ready and actually puts them in a posture of being shocked or surprised by the tests of life is this. A belief that God is busy working out my life from my happiness and my comfort. That's a common lie that stunts the growth in this whole area and makes people surprised. In fact, the surprise comes in when God does not play the game how I expect him to. Not only does surprise come in, but disillusionment in the Christian walk. Because there are certain things that happen in testing and trials that do not happen when we've got just peace and comfort and happiness. There's certain things that happen. Now, we might be tempted to think that something strange is happening to us or that maybe something accidentally slipped through God's sovereign hand. And I want to encourage you today that God has designed trials. He has designed testing and suffering in our lives to cleanse us and purify us and to prepare his bride, the church, for his return. So, we should expect trials as followers of Christ. When he's described as a man of sorrows, and we are followers of him, we should expect trials. In fact, I would say this, God doesn't want us to be surprised by anything in the Christian life. I've been reading a lot of scripture on this, and I'm finding out that continuously God is telling us to be prepared. So, it is his loving hand that has guided our authors today to share with us that we're not to be surprised at virtually anything in the Christian life. I want to read to you some passages to help you understand that we should not be surprised by the fiery ordeal or surprised at things. First Thessalonians 5, the writer is Paul. He says, but you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. He's referring to chapter 4 where he just told us that Jesus is going to come in the clouds. He's going to call his church to be with him. This should not be a surprise to you. Verse 5, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let's not like be like others who are asleep, 
but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong today, let's be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where everybody should go, oh yeah, or praise God, or thank you God, right? He did not appoint us to suffer wrath. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, as COVID for, living or dead, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So through Paul, he tells us that in chapter 4, his return in the clouds is coming. He tells us what happens to Christians when we die. So our funerals should look nothing like the world, right? There should not be like doom and gloom if somebody's a believer in Christ and they die, right? God wants us to be prepared and confident that in this life, as we endure hardship, it's going to lead to one of two results. Either we're going to die, or Christ is going to crack through the clouds. Don't be surprised that things get hard for following Christ in this life. He, Peter also says in 2 Peter, says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. In case you're wondering, or maybe you've believed the lie about global warming and we're going to destroy the earth. It's not true. When Christ promises to, he's going to be the one who's going to burn this whole thing up, it's actually a lie to not believe what the scripture says, that he's going to do it. So, you can have a warm confidence that we're not going to destroy the earth. He takes care of business here. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So, in other words... There should be like this excitement, like I'm going on vacation for the children of God about the return of Christ. The day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. But in keeping with this promise, we as believers are looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Now, through Peter's words, God wants his kids to be prepared for his return. Dad's coming back. He wants us to be living holy and godly lives. And he wants his kids anchored and confident in our trust in him through our trials that will inevitably, let's just all face the facts, will lead to death, which is really life for the believer, or we will endure that until he cracks through the clouds. So if you're caught off guard by trials, if you're caught off guard by God's discipline, if you're caught off guard by his return, friends, I'm just going to say this very gently, you've not been reading the scriptures that he's given us. God wants his kids prepared. He wants them ready. And the element of surprise is not for us who love him and trust him and know his words.
So he lovingly warns us that whether it's today, tomorrow, or the next 20 years, we can expect trials. And the purpose of this present life is not comfort. It's preparation. I'm going to say it again, because maybe you guys haven't had your coffee. The purpose of this present life is not, God, I trust in your son, Jesus Christ, to forgive me of my sins. Now please make me really, 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 really comfortable, please. And don't make me go through hard stuff. The purpose that each of our lungs are still breathing, our heart's still beating, is preparation. Jesus said, I go prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. So he's preparing a place for us. He's also preparing us for that place. And God uses trials in our life to be prepared for his return. So instead of being surprised, he tells us to do something. So let's look at it. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But verse 13 in this point number two in our outline is, choose to rejoice in suffering. It's a choice, and it's a command here. Verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now the rejoicing here happens is when you suffer like Jesus did for his kingdom purpose. But what does rejoicing look like? Is this just some religious kind of super high road spiritual thought that I'm going through difficulties and crud and I'm supposed to just put my smiley face on and wave? Is it just some fake? I don't think so. God is most concerned with the mature faith. And I think we have to understand, you can see it in your outline, you can see I have to understand two things that are going on in the middle of suffering. And when you understand these two things, you can rejoice in suffering. It's kind of like when you work out. None of us likes that first half mile that we run. It's like burning the cobwebs out of but there's something about that when you have exercise and your body's in shape, there's something about the payoff that comes from being a healthy person. Well, the first thing, you can see it in your outline, we must remember that suffering has a purpose. Just flip back to chapter 1 with me. Look at verse 6, and this, Peter tells us this right up front in his book. Talks about you guys have been struggling and suffering. He says, in all this you greatly rejoice. Verse 6. That though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come. But why, God? Why? These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. So God our Father is most concerned with authentic, beefed up, strengthened faith. And the trials of this life, suffering for Christ, is intended to produce something. In fact, 
as I said before, it's producing something that cannot be accomplished through just happiness and comfort. There's something that's happening. It's called the beefing up and the strengthening of our faith. And when we reduce our relationship to a ticket into heaven, you'll never be able to rejoice in suffering for Christ. He wants kids who are glorifying him, who have an authentic faith, who are rejoicing in it. And friends, if we do not understand that God's purpose for our lives here is to grow in our love, trust, our faith, we will never be able to rejoice in difficulties. In fact, we'll slide right into our natural response, which is complain. And when we complain, we still have the difficulty. We just wasted the opportunity to grow our faith. Follow me? So when we complain about difficulties or suffering for Christ or just the challenges in this life that test us, we still have the difficulty. We just miss the opportunity to grow our faith. So in a sense, it becomes wasted. Now in order to rejoice in suffering, <laughs> excuse me, we must remember that God's intent is to bolster and strengthen our faith. The second thing that we must remember, and you see it there in your outline, is that suffering for Christ has a reward. You know kids are not the only ones that need to be rewarded? God made us this way. In fact, I started uh, the, uh, our time of worship here with this passage. But Christ, in his Sermon on the Mount, barely took his first breath. And he said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he turns and says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely, say, uh, falsely see all kinds of evil against you because of me. And then he says something really weird. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward. Lift your eyes above the circumstance in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were ahead of you. So he knew his audience would need this precious promise in the years ahead as they follow the Lord Jesus and experience the cost of following him. No matter how hard life gets because of following Jesus, there is this payoff in the end. So he's promising this audience there is something coming down the pipe for being associated with me and the pain that that brings. And as you participate, if you look back, if you look back at uh, verse uh, 13, as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, he says, so you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. In other words, as you follow and love and trust him, and you experience all of the discomfort that comes in this world as being associated with Christ, you're going to look forward more and more to that time that he returns. In fact, his return, we see, means he's going to have his hands full of rewards. There's going to be, thank you, God, yes. So we have to remember that to rejoice in trials, it's producing something 
God's building up our faith. But no matter when circumstances come that we don't understand, we can rejoice in them because Jesus is good on his word when he says that great is your reward in heaven. Now let's look on to verses 14 to 18 because it's super, it can be get, get super confusing as we endure suffering. Because in verses 14 to 18, we need to examine the nature and the origin of our suffering. Verse 14, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory, uh, re- glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, uh, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Now, in verse 14, it says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ... You are blessed. Now, in my office, as I was studying this, no matter how I looked at it, insult, being insulted hurts. Bad. And if you've been insulted in the last few months, there's no way to slice up the pie. It hurts. So what does he mean here when he says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed? What could that possibly mean? To be honest with you, I can't look at circumstances around our world to discern this, so I have to look at Scripture as an example here. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen is standing before a religious council, and he's being drilled. And I want to read you a couple verses from chapter 6 and 7 of Acts. It says this, chapter 6, They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Verse 15, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Again, look at your text. He says that that if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He's in his great hour of trial and test. And he spoke in a way they couldn't refute. That's a supernatural thing where the Spirit of God's resting on him. And what's the outward indication that the Spirit of God is resting on him? He's glowing like an angel. Later on, he says this. Would you advance that, Cal? Later on, he says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven and this, heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. That doesn't sound blessed. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So surely Stephen didn't experience blessing as we would think of it. He was put on trial. God gave him wisdom that couldn't be refuted. His face glowed. And while they were dropping stones on him, he could look up and see the Savior standing 
watching. Friends, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He could see the Savior watching. And then God gave him a supernatural ability to forgive people who were dropping and throwing stones at him. Now, I believe that's what blessing means. It's not some of this weird American, my bank account is loaded, and my kids are all walking perfectly, and my marriage is per- like. Friends, Stephen had a warm confidence that in the middle of his crisis, he had the abiding presence of the Lord. And I believe that's blessing or blessed means. That despite suffering for the name of Jesus, there is a closeness that can only be experienced when suffering for Christ. Now, verse 15, he says something that seems to me to be pretty obvious, but it's not so obvious when you're in the middle of stuff. If you suffer, it should not be (coughs) as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. No, I hope there are no murderers in the room. Uh, But as we go down through this, as a murderer, thief, or criminal, or a meddler. It seems rather obvious that we should not be suffering as Christians because of our own sinful choices. He, this is kind of the second time he's brought this up. Why don't you glance back with me at chapter 2. And uh, your outline's wrong. It says Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 24. It's actually chapter 2. But glance with me. In verse chapter 2, verse 19, For it's commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you are conscious of God. How is it your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So we can very easily deceive ourselves into thinking that we're a victim when we're suffering. But I see a lot of Christians, to be honest with you. I don't see many of us murdering people but I definitely see a lot of people meddling. And I see people opening their mouths when they shouldn't. And I see people really bringing a lot of pain in their lives by their choices. And what he's saying here is this ought not be so. We all need to take a very hard look when we're going through things. We need to examine the nature and the origin of our suffering. In chapter 2, he's saying is, let's just make sure that we're conscious of God when we're going through hard times instead of following our sinful nature. Let's make sure that there's not the least bit of justice or 
getting what we deserve because of what we've said or done. And let's make sure not, we're not following some weird cultural sense of spirituality and we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. So flip back to chapter 4 with me. In verse 16 he says, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. This is only the third time that we see the name or the word Christian mentioned in the New Testament. Twice in the book of Acts and here in 1 Peter. It's originally thought to be a put down as believers. There's the little Christ. There's the little followers. But obviously through the generations it's been embraced. How many claim the name Christian? I do. I'm a follower of Christ. And he says, if you suffer for identifying as a Christian or a follower, give shame no place as you process what's going on around you. In fact, I love how scripture doesn't only tell us the truth, but gives examples of what this looks like. Because I, I just think about what's this look like to not be ashamed. In Acts 5, 40 to 42, John and Peter were standing before again in a religious council. Gamaliel speaks up and says, guys, we should not stand against them because if God's with them, there's nothing we can do and we won't stop them. And it says this, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and just for good measure, it had them flogged, right? And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. You notice culture has a problem with the name of Jesus. That's nothing new. It's 2,000 years old. And they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The name. Day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ of the Messiah. It's really badge and honor to experience discomfort in this life for the sake of Christ. And friends, don't entertain shame and don't play the victim as a child of the king when people treat you accordingly. Now, let's look in verses 17 to 18 because he says it's time for judgment to begin in the house of God. It's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will be the outcome or what will be become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, for us to understand verses 17 and 18, we have to understand something very clear. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in order to understand this text, you have to understand that those who believe that Christ died and rose again for their sins will never be condemned by God, will never be rejected by him, but will be judged by him. Let me repeat again. Those who believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again will never be condemned by God will never be rejected by God, 
but will be judged by God. And that judgment is not for entrance into heaven. It's not his acceptance, but it is for reward. And as I read earlier, Jesus says there's reward. You may have seen these passages, but just to help get you in the right mindset to understand we're not judged for entrance into heaven. Jesus paid it all, but we are judged for our reward. You then, why do you go around judging your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment. See, he says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what's due us for the things well done in the body, whether good or bad. And here's a really weird passage, if you haven't read this one in a while. He gives us a word picture of what judgment looks like, and he uses materials that we're familiar with. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. This is Paul. And someone else is building on it. In other words, we're doing spiritual activity. We're working for God. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive reward. There you go. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So it took God himself coming in human flesh and being murdered on a cross and rising again to pay the price for our sin and make a way for us to be made right with God the Father. That's hard. And the gospel is hard to believe because it's so radically simple that you can do nothing to earn your way. You can do nothing to be made right with God that it's paid in full by someone else and his name is Christ. It's so hard that the vast majority of the world, and even those who claim some form of Christianity, don't believe the gospel. They repackage works in some way, shape, or fashion. But he's saying is that we who believe in Christ we'll have a time of judgment, not condemnation, but judgment for rewards. And if as recipients of God's love, we're going to have a time of judgment for rewards, what would the experience be for those who reject his plan, his way of forgiveness through Christ? Who stand before the maker to be judged for their sin? and to be condemned. Just remember that no matter how hard things get here as a believer in Jesus, this is the hardest it gets on this earth. In contrast, for those who do not know Christ as their Savior, maybe perhaps the people giving you the hardest time in this life, 
it only gets worse. So, he challenges here. He quotes Proverbs 11.31. Let's face it. If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And that should motivate us not to play the victim, but empower us to live for the Lord. And so, friends, I want to encourage you not only to expect trials, let's challenge each other to rejoice in our trials because it produces a stronger faith and there's rewards coming. But we need to examine the nature of what we're going through to make sure there isn't something in our actions that God is trying to root out in us because of our sinfulness in our lives. Lastly, and we'll end with this in verse 19, commit yourself to our faithful creator and keep on. Let's read it. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Now notice there, he says, those who suffer according to God's will. You notice there's some disclaimers here. It shouldn't be for sinful stupidity. But there is a form of suffering that's according to God's will or his determination or his purpose or his decrees. And we must conclude that if it's not for sin, it is part of God's sovereign, big, loving hand in our life. He uses a banking term. He says this, if it's part of God's will, we should commit ourselves or themselves to the faithful creator. This concept of commit is a term of deposit. It's like I got $10,000 and I'm all nervous as I carry this through town. But once I get to the bank and I drop the money in, there's a sense of relief. There's a sense of like, I've just entrusted this and now I'm not responsible for it. He says this, uh, that if we suffer according to God's will, we should commit our souls, which is not just our physical body, but our entire well-being, to our faithful creator and continue to do good. In Ephesians 1, if, you are, if you've not been one to memorize scripture, I would encourage you to just tackle Ephesians 1. That, that one. that one right there will encourage you and sustain you through mo- almost anything. But in Ephesians chapter 1, he says this, that when we believed in Christ through the gospel, he put his spirit inside us as a deposit, a guarantee of our eternal inheritance. And now, as the spirit of God guarantees our inheritance, Peter is saying in a very practical sense, day by day, make the deposit When things don't make sense, make the deposit of your well-being into the sovereign hand of God, who is our faithful creator. Because there are are things that will not make sense in this Christian life. There are things that I can't make sense of. And he's encouraging us that when we experience these hardships, we need to look to our faithful creator and make the deposit. We, as Christians, don't look at circumstances to decide to be faithful. If you're going through a difficult marriage, you don't look at the difficulty of your marriage to decide if you're going to stay in the marriage. 
you look at our faithful God and continue to do good. If you're experiencing hardship for Christ, you don't look at circumstances and decide, will I continue? That's what the world does. He says, fix our eyes on our faithful creator and let that be the motivation for continuing to do good and to stay the course. I want to kind of help wash your brain with a couple of scriptures to help you understand what it means to commit yourself. First Peter 2, we read this before. But when they hurled insults at him, that's Jesus, he did not retaliate. And to be honest with you guys, this is hard for me. I'm kind of a high justice person. I'm all about justice and uh, there's a sense of like retaliation that just feeds my sinful nature. I love it. And here Jesus says, or the scripture says, he did not retaliate. These are words of Peter. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted, that's the banking term, he entrusted himself to him, him who judges justly. In his moment of execution, he trusted that the father was watching and would address the situation. Timothy, or Paul says this in Timothy as well, and I think this is so powerful for our day. The spirit of God, God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us not, or he has saved us and called us the holy life. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his purpose and grace. This grace was given in us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That should encourage you. You should all have a smile on your face if you're in Christ. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard which I have, there's the banking term, entrusted to him until that day. Friends, Paul, Peter, believed that Christ was good on his promises. He was good to entrust themselves to their faithful creator. And I want to close with this. Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible. Jesus, the Messiah, makes three promises. In Revelation 22, 7, he says this, Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy in the scroll. Verse 12, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone, or everyone, according to what they have done. And the very last words of Scripture that are the words of Christ, verse 20, I'm coming soon. So Christ is good on his word. And no matter how hard the test of suffering, even to the point of death, becomes, Christ sees what you endure. 
And we're called here in this passage to commit ourselves, deposit our well-being into his faithful hands. And you can believe and rely on the fact he is building up our faith, friends. That's what it's about. And he comes loaded with rewards for us who suffer on his behalf. So I'm going to leave you with this question. Are you going to pass the test? We all wonder, right? We all wonder, are we going to pass the test when that time comes? Well, if we believe and act on what he said in 1 Peter here, expect trials. We choose to rejoice in them. We have to examine to make sure we're not the cause of them. But when the trials come in for being associated with Christ and we don't know how to make sense of them, we put our palms up and we say, I trust you, my faithful creator. You've been faithful by God's grace. Would you help me to be faithful and continue to do good? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for these great and precious promises. Thank you that you haven't left your kids to be surprised. We don't have to be victims. We, are, we know you. We know the Savior. We know the way, the truth, and the life. And you've given us clear promises. So, Lord, please help us to never be surprised by the fiery ordeal. Lord, help us to expect it. Lord, I pray, as we look down the lane of our life and we see what you're doing and there are times we have confusion and questions, would you help us to entrust our well-being into your hands? And may we as a church family celebrate and champion that very thing. Help us to spur each other on to, to put our grips and sink our hands into you. Lord, there's a test coming and we need you. By your strength, we need you. And um, we pray that you'd, we'd be faithful in this time that you've appointed for us. We praise you now in Jesus' name.